Pope St. John Paul II said that discovering Christ always again and always more fully is the most wonderful adventure of our life. Blazing the Trail is a weekly conversation where we talk about this adventure with courage and hope while sharing stories about what the Holy Spirit is doing in Western Oregon and beyond. Welcome once again to Blazing the Trail, heard here on Mater Dei Radio and on the podcast channel for the Archdiocese of Portland in Oregon. I'm your host, Miriam Marston, and I get this chance each week to share with you my conversations with people who have been called to share the beauty of the gospel. And that mission could be lived out through being a parent, a teacher, a bishop, a writer, a musician. It's one big mission, but there are lots of ways to sign up for it. My guest this week is Dr. Holly Ordway, whose journey from atheism to Catholicism is yet another compelling example of what happens when our defenses come down, even for a moment, and we give permission to the Holy Spirit to really transform us and to bring us in alignment with the will of God, instead of fighting His divine plan for our lives. That stubborn resistance ends up being far more exhausting and frankly doesn't yield nearly as much fruit. And I say that from personal experience as someone who stubbornly resisted God for a while. There are so many different ways that people have encountered the truth of Jesus Christ. And for Dr. Ordway, that spiritual road traveled through places like Narnia and Middle Earth. And honestly, she's not alone. That is a well-traveled road, and I, for one, am glad to have discovered fellow pilgrims like her who have, in a way, stumbled mercifully and magnificently over the threshold of Christian belief by way of magic rings and wardrobes. As you'll hear, Dr. Ordway was steered towards God as she began to take a closer look at those authors whose work she enjoyed so very much. She wanted to know more about what inspired them, what made them tick, what was stirring behind the scenes that would give way to such vast and rich imaginary landscapes and characters. I'll let her tell the rest of the story, but suffice it to say that these literary explorations moved her from academic curiosity to a face-to-face encounter with a god who'd been trying to get her attention for some time. C.S. Lewis was very aware of this effect that literature could have on the human spirit, how storytelling could in a way sneak past some of those walls we have a tendency to put up against religious belief. He once wrote, I thought I saw how stories of this kind could steal past a certain inhibition which had paralyzed much of my own religion in childhood. Why did one find it so hard to feel as one was told one ought to feel about God or the sufferings of Christ? I thought the chief reason was that one was told one ought to. An obligation to feel can freeze feelings, and reverence itself did harm. The whole subject was associated with lowered voices, almost as if it were something medical. But supposing that by casting all of these things into an imaginary world, stripping them of their stained glass and Sunday school associations, one could make them for the first time appear in their real potency. Could one not thus steal past those watchful dragons? I thought one could. Again, that was C.S. Lewis. And I should add, of course, that the hope is that one would make their way back to the stained glass windows in the Sunday school sessions. But sometimes the mere act of turning in that direction can be the most difficult step to take. And that's just where evangelization gets interesting. So please enjoy my interview with Dr. Ordway, whose passionate search for the truth led her to a place she did not expect. And really, the word place isn't even quite right. 
Rather, it was a person. And this person knows and calls you by name as well. I'm joined today by Dr. Holly Ordway, who serves as the Fellow of Faith and Culture at the Word on Fire Institute and is a visiting professor of apologetics at Houston Baptist University. Dr. Ordway, it's wonderful to have you on the show today. How are you? I'm doing well, and it's a pleasure to be on. So, Dr. Ordway, a few years ago, I had read your memoir, uh, Not God's Type, An Atheist Academic Lays Down Her Arms, and I loved hearing your story. And I, I know that it's a bit tough to sum up a journey like that, but I'm wondering if you can share with our listeners how you found your way into Christian belief and ultimately into the Catholic Church. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to say, first of all, that um, I know from experience that it is possible for even the most hardened atheists to eventually come to know the Lord, because uh, that was me, and, uh, and here I am, <laughs> not, only a, not only a Catholic, but working for a Catholic ministry. So God and his providence can do all sorts of things. Um, so to give kind of the quick, the quick version of my story, uh, I grew up in a totally non-religious family, um, just no, no experience whatsoever of the faith. Um, not not an atheist family, but just non non religious. But then when I went off to college, um, I really very quickly fell into this sort of rut of of atheism because I went to a very good secular school, um, but the assumption there was that Christianity was just you know superstitious nonsense at best and you know harmful idiocy at worst. And I ran with atheist friends and you know impressionable you know, young woman, pretty soon I was like, oh yeah, that Christianity stuff, of course it's stupid. Ended up becoming um, very, very committed as an atheist in my 20s um, because this seemed to me to make sense of the world. I, I didn't have any experience of what Christians actually knew, didn't know any Christians personally. Hmm. The only exposure that I really had to what I understood as Christianity was like, stupid sappy hallmark channel movies and televangelists and and the ranting guy in the quad who you know shouted you know believe in god or burn in hell forever yeah that's really motivating you know i didn't even believe i had a soul much less that the soul would go anywhere so i was really pretty firmly committed to that because i thought it was true um i wasn't angry at god because i literally did not think there was any such thing i thought we were just very smart animals who happened to have invented some cool stuff um, and we were going to die and dissolve into our component atoms and the, the meaning in our life we had to come up with for ourselves. Um, and it was all very grim and depressing, but you know, you got to face, you got to face it. If it's true, it's true, whether you like it or not. Little did I know that the attitude would actually help me become a Christian. Um, the idea of facing the truth, even if you don't like it is, is quite a helpful thought of mind, habit of mind. So in any case, that was my that was my attitude. So I was really intellectually very very committed to this idea that Christianity was stupid um, and pointless. So of course I wasn't interested in learning about it because why would I bother? But as a girl, I had also been reading all of these wonderful stories by Christians, including C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, um, Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbits, deeply Christian books. Even though I didn't recognize any of the Christian elements of it did my doctoral dissertation on fantasy, wrote a lot about the Lord of the Rings, really just engaged with that vision and found it profoundly moving. Read lots of Christian poets in my um, studies as an English major, loved those poets. 
eventually when I got to be in my first full-time teaching job as an English professor, I'm finding myself teaching these great authors again who are all Christians. I mean, they're, you know, not all Christians, but loads of Christians writing this fantastic poetry. And here's Lewis, and here's Tolkien. And finally, I got to the point where I said to myself, you know, people like Tolkien and Lewis and T.S. Eliot and John Donne and Gerard Manley Hopkins and George Herbert, you know, they're not stupid. <laughs> they're, 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 they're thoughtful, intelligent, discerning, artistically talented writers. I wonder what they actually believe. Maybe it's not quite as stupid as what I, I think it is. Yeah. So I wanted to find out what they believed to kind of have a better sense just of their work. Um, but because I was finally engaging with it with an open mind, not trying to disprove them, but just, well, what do they actually believe in? Yeah. I was actually ready to kind of hear it. Um, and it turns out in God's providence, um, I was actually a competitive sport fencer at the time. I was a competitive fencer for almost 20 years. I was at a very good um, fencing club um, where I was living at the time. And it turns out my coach was an evangelical Christian who I had come to admire as my coach before I knew he was a Christian. And so I was able to ask him, you know, some of these questions and he was interested in apologetics and he lent me books and I started studying and oh my word, I pretty quickly discovered that all of the stuff I thought Christians believed was not actually what they believed. And to make a long story short, I basically said, oops, it's true. I had to actually better do something about that. And because I had had all of my adult life, the conviction that you have to face the truth, whether you like it or not, that was what prompted me. Like, well, I don't particularly like this. I don't really want to become a Christian, but it happens to be true. I think I had, I had better do it. So I became, uh, so I became a Christian um, and was in the, um, the Episcopalian church for a few years. And then eventually, as I recount in, in Not God's Type, found myself gradually more and more convinced that the Catholic church was actually the, the fullness of the faith and then um, became, became a Catholic. And so here I am. <laughs> so that's yeah. the short version of the story. Yeah, no, that's that's great, and I, I I want to encourage our listeners. There's, uh, it's it's great to hear the short version, but I encourage reading the long version too. It's wonderful, um, and just to see how God's grace just breaks through. Once there's an open door, that's all it takes is a crack in the door, and I I just love hearing that, um, and I find that so hopeful, especially for those who might be listening who might be at a similar crossroads too, who are wondering what is true. And it just seems like you kind of chased relentlessly <laughs> after the truth. Um, and, and I'm curious, was there, from everything you read, uh, were there just a few things that really stuck out in particular that kind of helped push you over the threshold a little bit? I'm just curious. Yeah, well, I think C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, yeah. was hugely helpful just in clarifying the, the big picture view, what it is that Christians believe and about how, how God operates in the world um, and how the moral sense, because I had, a, I had actually a, a strong sense of morality. I couldn't live up to it particularly well. I didn't know where it came from, but I did genuinely feel that we ought to, you know, be good to each other, do good, not evil. And, and Lewis and Mere Christianity really builds on that and allowed me to see, well, I need to consider where does it come from? Where is it going? Mm -hmm. Uh, why do I even believe this? So that was helpful. Um, and also the screw tape letters helped me to think more clearly about, you know, temptation and choosing to, what does it mean to, to choose God versus not to? So that was very helpful yeah. um, conceptually. 
And then I would also point out um, that N.T. Wright's magisterial work on the resurrection, especially this massive book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, was really, really helpful because I entered into examining the question of, okay, I come to accept philosophically that God existed, but, you know, Christianity is, is based on whether this man called Jesus of Nazareth actually rose from the dead. And I really went into that question fully expecting to come out with the answer of, well, we can't know one way or the other, but Christians just believe it. And so I was pretty much knocked off my feet by realizing that this is a historical claim with historical evidence that is as or better attested as many historical events in antiquity that I have no problem saying, of course that happened. So, and N.T. Wright's book especially really just definitively showed me that Yes, the resurrection is a thing that happened. It's a mind-blowing thing that happened, but it's a thing that actually happened, and I have to come to terms with it. You can't just say, oh, the incarnate Son of God rose from the dead. That's nice. You, you have to come to terms with it, and that really was pivotal. And I will add that Lewis came in again because I, had, I got to the point of realizing that the resurrection had actually happened, but I felt really hung up on like, but, but this means that God became a human being. How? How could the God who made the cosmos, the galaxies, be a, be a little baby, you know? And it was actually Lewis in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe that kind of broke through for me because his picture of Aslan, um, he's the Christ figure of Narnia, that actually imaginatively allowed me to grasp the meaning of incarnation because hmm. I already had the philosophical arguments and the historical evidence that let me see. Yes. But that literary experience helped me connect the pieces and say, I get it. I get it. Um, and that actually is, is, is a lot of what led to my current work in faith and culture because it's the both and because I needed to know that intellectually it is a robust argument. We aren't just saying this because it makes us feel nice. It actually happened and we've got a good argument for that. It's true. But I also needed the imaginative engagement that helped me to see that this means something to put the pieces together. You need both of those pieces. And that really is at the heart now, not only of my own personal journey, but of what I'm trying to do you know, at Word on Fire. Thank you for sharing. And and you're so right. And especially that meaning, um, that's where we then feel compelled to change our lives because you can have that intellectual ascent, which is fine. But once that meaning sinks in, that's where our life might change course. Without that, I don't I don't see how that could happen. There's not a lot at stake, really. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, you, you mentioned uh, Word on Fire. And so I want to sort of move in that direction. And for those who are just joining, um, I'm speaking today with Dr. Holly Ordway, who serves as the Fellow of Faith and Culture at the Word on Fire Institute. So Dr. Ordway, I would love to hear more about your work, especially with this intersection of faith and culture. And please, if you could share with our listeners, what is the Word on Fire Institute? Well, it's a relatively new endeavor, just a couple years old, within the larger um, ministry of Word on Fire, um, Bishop Robert Barron's ministry, which is, you know, evangelizing, evangelizing the culture, especially helping the nuns, the unaffiliated, the fallen away Catholics to, to come back and to have this kind of robust 
um, affirmative faith, affirmative orthodoxy, where we're saying yes to what the church teaches um, and, and, you know, really embracing that, uh, finding ways to, to lead with beauty, to help people, you know, encounter God in that way, to evangelize with the new media. All of these things are part of the Word on Fire um, approach. But what we're doing in the Institute is, is more focused. And the Institute is basically the uh, formational branch of on fire. And our mission is to equip and form evangelists, um, to bring people in who are passionate about them becoming evangelizers. And we equip them, we form them, we provide a community um, of fellow evangelists and training so that we can send them out into the world to be sharing the gospel. And of course, as fellow faith and culture, um, you know, Part of that involves, you know, creating materials for the Institute. Um, part of it involves, you know, just teaching them how to engage with culture. And part of it involves modeling what does it mean to be a Catholic who engages in culture. So I've got my, you know, my public writing and my public speaking and my literary critical work. I've just written a book on Tolkien, um, you know, modeling what does it look like to be a fully formed Catholic who is evangelizing in that wider world in a, in a variety of ways. So that's kind of in some what we're, what we're doing in the Institute. Okay. And what does, what would some of that formation look like? Are we talking about like just uh, coursework? Um, are they workshops? Uh, are people traveling places? What might that look like for someone who is an evangelist in training? Well, we have a lot of this is uh, work in progress. Uh, we have a lot of, um, um, course materials in the form of um, video courses that people can take at their own pace um, and, and delve into that. We have community forums where um, we now have um, seminars where people can sign up um, to be um, working in a small group. We've just started running what we call discussion leadership seminars, um, where we've just taken our first round of uh, 30 people through an intensive three-week mentoring program with myself and uh, one of the, the fellow of community, Joe Zambone, and we did hands-on mentoring to help um, this group of, of uh, Institute members to learn how to have fruitful conversations. And then, you know, then they go back out into the world and we invite in a new round of people to have that um, intensive training. And, you know, we're setting up um, groups. We already have several groups set up where people can, um, you know, within the larger institute membership is quite large. Um, mm -hmm. But within that to have, um, we have, for instance, a St. Joseph um, consecration group that's yeah. praying together. Um, we have a, uh, a book club group that's reading um, St. Teresa's Story of the Soul right now and having mm -hmm. discussion about that. So we're all about providing opportunities for people to gather and to engage um, with fruitful content that we're providing, but also to be engaging in discussion and interaction um, with other people. And as time goes on, you know, with seminars and workshops and things. Yeah, wonderful. And Dr. Ordway, I want to ask, uh, given your own background and journey, how that might have fashioned and sort of shaped your own approach now to your work. Um, and in particular, I have in mind you know, it's not to be negative, but I know we have to acknowledge some of the obstacles to sharing the good news. And I'm, I'm wondering from where you've come from, having gone through a conversion experience yourself, you might be particularly attuned to what might stand in the way. So I'm wondering how, how that influenced your work now and what you see as some of the maybe big obstacles, but also I want to hear signs of just fruit and hope that you've already seen in your work in ministry. Well, I think one of, one of the um, big lessons that I've drawn from my own, my own work is the need for patience, that this yeah. is a journey. 
I mean, I became a Christian at, I think I was 31. Um, and, you know, and then I became a Catholic, you know, uh, six years later. So it's like, you know, there's, it's a process, it's a journey. And I think sometimes evangelists can get impatient with all the best intentions because we want them to know the Lord. But you can't hurry people on this kind of journey. You, you know, this is the kind of accompaniment that I think Pope Francis is talking about. You, you're not just standing around with them wherever they are and letting them stay there. You're, you're leading them towards a goal, but you can't take a person any faster than, than they're capable of going. You know, you walk with them at their pace and you help them to walk in the right direction, yeah. but you've got to walk with them. You can't, sh- you can't shove them into the kingdom. And my own experience, you know, thinking back on some, what I now see as failed attempts to evangelize me, when people try to shove you, you don't hurry up, you dig in your heels. So it's actually trying to hurry people up has the opposite effect than than what we want. Um, So one of the things that I've seen already bearing fruit um, uh, at Word on Fire is just encouraging people to learn how to have good conversations Mm -hmm. and to learn how to have discuss resources that are not pushy, that are not threatening. Like my, one of my big things, obviously, is literature. So have a conversation about The Lord of the Rings. Have a conversation about Shakespeare or, you know, whatever book you want to talk about. You know, we, Word on a Fire has a line of, of classics books that we're putting out that, you know, great volumes, great in themselves, also great for discussion. You know, a Flannery O'Connor short story. She's a writer who's admired by people who are not Christians as well as those who are. And I would say that really the fruit comes about when people start learning kind of how to back off and say, well, let's, let's talk about this. Let's explore this together. Let's, let's learn this together. Because we as evangelists, you know, we need to treat each person that we encounter as an individual, as, as a person, and not just as, you know, another unit, atheist unit or a skeptic unit or a fallen away unit. No. Yeah. So, person with a history, with interests, with concerns, with, with perhaps very legitimate reasons why they have walked away from the church mm-hmm. or very you know, legitimate um, gaps that mean that they don't understand why Christianity is true. So I think that slower paced approach, especially one that engages, you know, this is the leading with beauty, engages with literature, engages with the arts um, as, a, as a way to find a common ground, a common vocabulary and, and ideas that you can talk about in a non-threatening way, yeah. because if you, if it all comes down to like, well, what are you going to do? You know, what do you believe that, you know, there's a, there's a place and a time where that has to happen. You've got to eventually take the step and say, well, what is, what about you? But I think we sometimes go there too quickly. I think we need to have time for people to say, well, you know, what about the character in this book? And, well, what do you think about Aslan and Narnia? And, you know, what do you think about this? And, oh, you know, that kind of conversation allows people to kind of process the ideas in a way that gets under their skin, gets past the defenses, they're able to process so that we, so that when we make that invitation, we might get a, well, maybe, (laughs) rather than, no, you know? Yeah. You know, as, as you were speaking, I was reminded of the, that phrase from my forming intentional disciples by Sherry Waddell, who says, uh, never, ex- never accept a label in the place of a story. And I think the importance of taking the time to hear someone's story and maybe the reasons for why they don't believe 
you know, certain things. I think it's so important. We have a couple minutes left, Dr. Ordway, and I, I would love for you just to share, because I know you have this new book that just came out and Tolkien was, he was influential in my own journey. I know he was so influential in yours and has had an impact on so many people. Could you just share briefly what this new book is about? Well, it's, uh, it's called Tolkien's Modern Reading, Middle-Earth, Beyond the Middle Ages, and it's actually the first book published by Word on Fire's academic line, um, mm-hmm. so I'm very excited about that, and a literary critical book um, that is just exploring the question of, did Tolkien read literature you know, of, of the modern day? The answer is yes, he did quite a lot. He actually wasn't just stuck in reading medieval literature, as a lot of people think. He was really quite actively interested in, engaged in, thoughtful about contemporary fiction and poetry. And this had a lot of influence on his, on his writing. And it also, I found, shows Tolkien himself in a much more three-dimensional way. And I think I, mean, I wrote this book deliberately to be accessible and interesting for anybody who enjoys Tolkien. Um, that's something I'm actually very passionate about as, a, as an academic, that I think we need to be doing good scholarship that is readable and interesting for everybody who's interested in that, in that subject. So I've tried to do that with Tolkien's modern reading. And I, I hope that it will be interesting, first of all, you know, for anybody who just kind of wants to know where did the Lord of the Rings come from? But also I think that as Catholics, it's, he's a helpful role model because he was a devout Catholic, very serious about his faith, um, invests his faith in his writings in a way that make them very helpful for us to share with people. Um, and how did he engage with modern culture? Well, it turns out that he engaged thoughtfully, discerningly, transformatively. Yeah. So by the time I got done with the study, I spent the last 10 years working on it. I found that Tolkien really, in a way, is a role model for that engagement of faith and culture. Um, and so that's something I think is an added, an added bonus for, uh, for Catholic readers to see kind of that path he's showing for us. Wonderful. Oh, we might have to have you back in order to dive into that specific topic about how Tolkien can be a witness of evangelization uh, for us all. So uh, thank you so much for coming on the show today. May God continue to bless your teaching, your writing, all of your work. I pray that many more people find their way to Christ through your good work. Thank you and God bless. Thank you. So I love stories as much as the next person, but there does come a moment when we have to step away from the safety of the written pages and recognize that all those good things that we've taken away from our favorite stories are actually ways that we've been prepared and equipped for mission in this life. We say it a lot on this show, but that is the ordinary life of the disciple, to be ready to step out in faith in the particular way that God calls us to and to do our own small part to bring as many other people as possible into this adventure with us. At one point in The Lord of the Rings, Tolkien has the character Samwise Gamgee give this little speech. I don't know how to say it, but after last night, I feel different. I seem to see ahead in a kind of way. I know we are going to take a very long road into darkness, but I know I can't turn back. It isn't to see elves now, nor dragons, nor mountains that I want. I don't rightly know what I want, but I have something to do before the end, and it lies ahead, not in the shire. I must see it through, sir, if you understand me. Like Samwise, we each have something to do before the end, and it might very well include a a path through some kind of darkness or difficulty. But if the God who entrusted us with this mission 
If he is so merciful and so loving, how can we doubt that where we're headed is anything less than what is good? So my prayer for you all this week is that if there are any fears or hesitations that might be holding you back in your own spiritual life, that the grace of God simply casts these things out, and that the way forward in this mission is illuminated by the light of the world. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please join me next week as we walk together towards the true, the good, and the beautiful. Until then, stay well and stay close to Christ. God bless you all. You've been listening to Blazing the Trail, produced through the studios of the Archdiocese of Portland. Join us in our mission to share the good news of Jesus Christ across Western Oregon by visiting archdpdx.org.